Well, good morning. If you have your Bible, turn to James chapter 4. Uh, we're going to continue our sermon series through the letter from James, James the half-brother of Jesus. This was a letter that was written to Christians about 45 A.D.-ish, and uh, one of the first New Testament books written, New Testament letters written. It's kind of toward the end, even still, it's kind of toward the end of the New Testament. James chapter 4, we're going to look at verse 6. As you turn there, I just want to test your concentration skills, your ability to concentrate. Uh, we're going to watch a short video segment here, and there's going to be some people in white shirts, and there's going to be some in dark clothing. And what I want you to do is focus, see if you can count the number of basketball passes, whatever way things are passed, made by the white-shirted team only. See if you can concentrate on the white-shirted team only and the number of passes, the number of ways they pass the ball. The video moves kind of fast, they move kind of fast. So see if you can stay focused. Let's watch this. This is a test. How many times does the white team pass the rubber band ball? Go! If you answered 13 passes, you are correct. But did you see the Black Belt Gorilla? Go! Now, for those of you who didn't see it the first time, they didn't change the video. It was just like that the first time through. Uh, the first time I saw it, I missed it. I didn't see the gorilla at all. Now, you know, we've, I've shown a version like this about seven years ago, so maybe you saw that. Or sometimes some classes use it in psychology. So maybe you were savvy or just maybe you're just a better observer than me. But what the psychologists who use this, develop this and use this say is that at least 50% of those who view it miss the gorilla, man, the man in the gorilla suit. They miss it all together. Of course, the key is me telling you to look at something else. The key is to get your attention, your focus, in a sense, preoccupied on something else, and that way you miss the obvious right in the middle of the room. By getting you to focus only on the busyness of the passing balls and just those in white shirts, in a sense, a kind of illusion is created. Not an illusion of something you see that's not real, but instead, rather, an illusion of something that's real that you don't see. And the Bible tells us that that kind of illusion, that same kind of illusion of seeing something that's real, or the illusion of something that's real that you don't see, is the exact same kind of illusion that, uh, illusion that happens when it comes to certain spiritual realities that affect our lives the most. So, so much of our culture tells us what we should seek after and look for, what we should be preoccupied with, what we should focus on, what kinds of things we should fill our busyness with. And those things misdirect and can actually redefine how we see reality and how we see our lives. Now, 
the illusion of not seeing a man in a gorilla suit doing black belt kind of stuff, yeah, that's one thing. It's not that big of a deal. So what if you missed it? But when you have the illusion of not perceiving a very real presence, a very real and present monster that's in reality beyond your worst imagination, a predator that's trying to actually devour you and everything that you love, that's altogether a much more dangerous illusion. And the Bible is trying to speak into our existence from the outside in to tell us that we're being fooled. That's what James does here in James chapter 4, starting in verse 6. James is telling us how to break through this illusion in our lives. Let's just start reading. He says, but God, but he gives us more grace. That's why the scripture says, that's why scripture says, and now he's going to quote scripture. He's going to quote the Old Testament, Proverbs 3, 34. That's why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. And now James gets even tougher. I think the more we're fooled by the world's illusion, the more this is going to seem weird and very strange to us. But he goes on to say this. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will lift you up. I don't know if you caught those words. Strange, right? Humble, mourn, grieve, wail. This is not exactly the way you would want your life to be characterized, right? Somebody says, how's your life going? Well, you know, it's going great. I'm I'm really weeping and grieving and mourning and, and wailing. You just kind of give the thumbs up like all is well. That would seem really strange. It's not the typical way that we think our lives should be. In fact, they're, not the, they're rather the opposite of the typical way we think God wants our lives to be. But apparently not according to James. Then why, why so serious? Why so serious about resisting pride and humbling ourselves in our life? Why submit to God? Why so serious about it? Why so serious about resisting the devil in your life? Why so serious about drawing near to God and wanting God to come near to you? Why be so serious about washing and purifying our life and our heart? Why does James seem to call us to such serious doom and gloom? Why? Why is so serious? And I think it's because James is aware of a reality that most of us are unaware or choose to ignore. The Bible's trying to tell us something. The Bible's trying to speak from the outside in about a reality that we're not seeing. We're being fooled by an illusion. And if the Bible were really trying to tell you about that, what would you have it say? See, the Bible never tells us to fear the devil. Never tells us to fear Satan or his demonic forces. But in here, like James, and in places like 1 Peter chapter 5, it does tell us to be not afraid, but alert. Not obsessed and weird, but sober-minded. 
about the reality of Satan's real presence in our lives. Let's just look at, for example, 1 Peter 5, 5, and notice again the same kind of themes of the importance of humility versus pride and how that relates to the devil in our lives. Let's, let's read it. All of you, Peter says, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because, and now he's going to quote the same proverb, Proverbs, Proverbs 3, 34, because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, because that's true. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. So that's a lot of the same things James says. He says in verse 8, Be alert and of sober mind. Why? Well, here's why. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith. So both James and Peter are warning us, humble yourself. Be very serious about humbling yourself. Be alert. Be sober-minded. Don't be weird. Don't be obsessed. Don't be afraid. Be alert. Be sober-minded. Be aware and resist the devil. Remember what James said back in chapter 3, the previous chapter, verse 14. Keith talked about it a few weeks ago. He says, but if you harbor bitter, talking about relationships and what's going on inside of us, inside our relationships, but if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom, quote unquote, does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, and I catch this, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, right there, where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you have the demonic. There you find disorder and every evil practice. Now think about this. Think about that verse. If the Bible really is trying to get you to see something that the illusion of the world tries to keep you from seeing? Again, what would you have it say? What's it trying to tell us? God is telling us in His Word that we are to understand pride. We're we're to understand envy. We're to understand selfish ambition, self-absorption, as directly linked with the devil, directly linked to Satan, directly linked to the demonic, to demonic forces. That the devil, Satan, and his demonic forces are very real. It's not a mythology. They're very real and very present, far more than perhaps you think. And the destruction and the dysfunction and the evil that they bring is like a wild lion, a wild beast devouring its prey. And the more we perceive the real monster present in the midst of our temptation and sin, the more we understand what envy really is, the more we understand what pride really is, and the disorder and the evil practice that unfolds because of the very real presence of the demonic in those things in our heart, within the less appealing and attractive those sins become, right? Years ago, I had an experience with the demonic, a direct experience Kind of like one of those things you read about in the New Testament that woke me up to that reality. I'm not going to get into it. I don't talk about it. I haven't talked about it. I'm not going to talk about it if you ask. 
I'm not going to tell you because the minute I start talking about it is the minute that I start to sensationalize the demonic, and that would be, I don't want to do that. But it was something similar that you read about in the New Testament. Very real, very shocking. I had a very real and personally shocking experience with a demonic that woke me up in a way I've never been the same since. It turns out that it would not be the only time that would happen, but it was the first. And as the first goes, it was extremely shocking. And I literally think after the event that I was in shock. My body was shaking. I was trying to drive home. I just wanted to pull over on the side of the road and and throw up. It was so horrible, so real, so demonic. I have intellectually no doubt whatsoever that what the Bible says about the demonic is absolutely true. I saw the world entirely different, and I saw sin entirely different. And when I got home after that event, I wanted to completely clean house when it came to sin in my life. You know how we all have kind of secret sins we haven't told anybody, not even our spouse. The secret sins that we've done, secret sins that we're doing, habits that we kind of keep to ourselves that we know are destructive and sinful, but it's just kind of our habit. I saw those things for the evil that they were when it comes to the demonic, and I so badly wanted to aggressively confess my sin. I wanted to wash my hands. I wanted to purify my heart. I wanted to submit to God. I wanted to resist the devil. I wanted to change my laughter into mourning. I wanted to grieve mourn and wail. I wanted to humble myself before the Lord. It was so serious, and I didn't feel like laughing at that time. That's what James is talking about when we understand the reality of the devil. And so I came home that night, and I aggressively confessed all my sins to my wife. I didn't hold anything back. I told her everything. After I told her the story and why I was telling her everything, she did the exact same thing. And we had a night of confessing. We had a night of repenting. We had a late night of doing the exact things that James is talking about here. I didn't feel like laughing. I felt like grieving. I felt like crying. And in fact, that went on for weeks. It went on for months. I was so serious. I was so sobered by this. I would wake up in the middle of the night shaking in terror. I was so overwhelmed by what I had seen. My wife would have to get up, turn to the Psalms, and read and pray through them just for me because I couldn't do it myself. That event happened on November 10th, 1988, 25 years ago. It was a huge milestone in my life. I saw the world and I saw sin completely differently after that. That's what James is talking about here. But we have to trust it. We have to believe it. See, if James and Peter are are right, and pride is the first and primary means by which Satan and his demonic forces gain greater access to our lives, then we should at least ask the question, what exactly is pride in the Bible? And part of my being sobered by this, part of my grieving, mourning, wailing, wanting to wash my hands, purify my heart, 
deal with pride in my life, humble myself, submit to the Lord, resist the devil 25 years ago. I just went through the entire Bible and I found every verse that talked about pride and arrogance and all that kind of stuff. And here's what I think the Bible means when it means pride. Ultimately, I think we can say that pride is all the various forms, different forms for different personalities. But pride is all the various forms of self-will. Being self-ambitious, self-absorbed, self-centered, self-focused, self-purposed, self-gloried. It can look like the arrogant, self-boasting kind of pride that's obvious when we think of somebody who's boasting and arrogant. And that kind of pride can really stress the peace and harmony and joy of close relationships. But equally stressing to the peace and harmony and joy of close relationships is another kind of pride altogether. And it forms itself in different, it's a different kind of pride in different personalities. The other kind of pride can look on the outside like quiet humility. But inside, in the heart, inside the heart is filled with self-absorbed thoughts of jealousy and envy or being offended because we're not getting the kind of respect or recognition we feel we deserved. All this is happening inside. All on the outside, we look humble and sweet, kind, quiet, nice, submissive. And there's a monster unleashing inside of us of pride. See, to one degree or another, we're all sort of trapped in a false premise that sees self-will and self-purpose and self-ambition as self-will, self-purpose. See, Satan's greatest mask by which he disguises himself is a mirror pointed our way. He comes to us as our own, quote-unquote, desires and self-will. He doesn't tempt us as himself. He never comes and says, I am a horrible, invisible, terribly destructive monster. Come, follow me. That's not going to be very appealing. No, he doesn't come to us as himself. He tempts us as ourselves. He doesn't come to us as himself and say, follow me. He comes to us and says, follow yourself. He points a mirror our way and says, follow me. You ever speak to yourself? You ever have a kind of a talking to yourself? You either feel to yourself, think to yourself, speak to yourself, but you're kind of dialoguing with yourself. Here's a question. How do you know that's you? How do you know every time you're thinking to yourself, talking to your Self, slandering somebody to yourself, slandering God to yourself, slandering yourself to yourself. How do you know that's you? I know it speaks in the first person and all. How do you know it's you? How do you know that's you when you think to yourself? Now, you know, pride can look like arrogance, but remember, how do you, maybe, maybe it might be more the inferiority kind of thing the beating up yourself kind of thoughts. You can't go to sleep at night or you wake up in the middle of the night and you're just beating yourself up. Well, it seems like you're beating yourself up. How do you know that's you? You, Pisa. You're just worthless. You're not. How could you? You don't. You're not. 
And there's this slander going on toward yourself, and you're just, when it looks like humility, it doesn't look like pride at all, but guess what? It's being self-focused. It's being self-absorbed. It's a trick. The devil wants you proud, self-willed, self-focused. Whether positive or negative, he wants you focused on yourself. He wants you to see your glory as separated from God's glory, negatively or positively. He wants you to think the idea of humbling yourself and submitting to God will take away your freedom to be happy. He wants you to think that the idea of coming near to God is too much work and it's too boring and even if you tried it, it wouldn't work for you. God's not going to come near to you. He wants you to feel negative about God. He wants you literally to feel negative about opening your Bible. You open your Bible, you get this negative feel, this emotional pit in your stomach, and you think, well, surely there's something to eat. Surely there's something good on TV. What time does the game start? How do you know that's you? Again, we're not going to be weird and obsessed about all this, but alert. We're not going to be afraid like all of a sudden we're controlled by some demon, but alert and sober-minded. He wants you to keep God at a distance. He wants your heart to be hardened to God and more excited about other things so that you won't even want to make the serious effort that's always required to draw near to God. He doesn't want you to think you can wash your hands and purify your heart through true confession, aggressive confession and repentance, getting serious about confession and repentance. Instead, he wants you to identify with your sin as being your true self. He tells you that you must be true to yourself. You must live an authentic life and surrender to your desires. That's integrity, following your true desires. Well, how do you know that's you? He wants you to reduce all of who you are as being created in the image of God. And everything that that meant in the original creation was marred and deformed by the fall, but everything that was fulfilled in Christ and guaranteed and promised to His people to be restored in the kingdom of God, all that it means to be created in the image of God and recreated in the resurrected image of Christ, He wants you to take all of that and instead reduce your identity all the way down like the incredible shrinking kids or honey who shrunk the kids or whatever, all the way down and shrink you all the way down just to your sexual and you live relationally dysfunctional just like everyone else in this increasingly over-sexualized culture instead of this big blue sky of what it means to be a person created and newly created in the image of God he wants you to keep you self-willed because he knows that's what will allow him to control you and destroy you that's his ultimate goal That's how Satan entraps and enslaves us, by our own will, by our own choice, because we think we're following ourselves. But he enslaves and entraps us to do his will all the time we think it's our own. 
I mean, again, if the Bible's trying to tell us this is reality, I know you don't see it, you're being fooled, you're being preoccupied, your focus is in the wrong place, but this is the reality of the world in which you live, what would you have it say? In 2 Timothy 2.25, talking to a pastor named Timothy about how to handle problem people in the church, here's what the Apostle Paul says. Opponents must be gently, that's key, gently instructed, in the hope that, who knows, that God will grant them repentance. Here's what repentance is. Leading them to a knowledge of the truth and that they will, listen to the language, come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive. That's strong language. Taken them captive to do his will. Now just think about that verse for a minute. Think about what that just said. Do you think that happens? When it happens, what do you think it looks like? Imagine the spiritual reality of what this really is. If if we were going to think of someone as enslaved in a kind of spiritual trance from which they must come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil, this invisible spiritual being who has taken them captive to do his will, well, what do you what comes to your mind? We would think of someone on the extreme. You know, we'd think of something like the exorcist or the walking dead or something. I don't know, something extreme. Nobody like that here. But this Bible verse is talking about somebody, a normal person in the church. They probably lived very normal lives and thought they were just doing their own will. But God's Word says that their self-will was in reality a trance, a trap, an illusion of the devil who had taken them captive to do his will. They didn't know that. Or what about this description of some people that used to be in the church in Paul's day? He talks about them in 1 Timothy 5.15. He says, some have, in fact, already turned away to follow Satan. Now, that's strong language, right? Now, my guess is none. My guess is none of these people thought of themselves as following Satan. Well, you know, we've kind of talked about it, and we've decided that we're going to turn away from God now and start following Satan. We think that's the better deal. You know, I don't think that conversation ever took place, whether in somebody's head or in somebody's group. No, they were simply following their own desires instead of God's, or at least so they thought. That was the illusion. And so James tells us, will we listen? James tells us, but he gives us more grace. That is why the Scripture says God opposes the proud, the self-willed, the self-focused, the self-preoccupied, the self-purposed, the self-gloried. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then. This is serious, James is saying. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. 
Come near to God, and He will come near to you. Wash your hands, you, you sinners. Purify your hearts, double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and will take this very seriously. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom if necessary, if for a season, but take it seriously. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will lift you up. Some of you are saying, why is so serious? Why so serious? Some of you know that question was a famous line used by the Joker in The Dark Knight. Why so serious? Throughout the film, he says in these creepy ways, and they get creepier every time he tells some anecdote about it, that phrase with his mouth cut and scarred into an evil kind of smile. It's creepy, it's weird, it's evil. Why so serious? And maybe in a similar way, as you read this passage in James, Satan is saying that to you. Gosh, James, why so serious? You know what Satan is trying to do? He's trying to keep your thinking turned upside down. When you really think about it, if you believe in God, God who created the universe, created the world, God who created you, the God who has given us his word and spoken to us, if you just think about it on the logical level of just granting that, if we can just think about it long enough and just think clear enough, it becomes clearer and clearer that the stupidest thought in the universe is self-will instead of God's will. I mean, think about it. How's that going to go for you? Self-will instead of the will of the one who created the entire universe, who created you, has the power of life and death, keeps your heart beating, keeps your lungs breathing. I don't know. I wonder which one's going to work. I think I might have a good strategy here. i got a good thing planned for myself. I just, it doesn't make any sense. But that's what self-will's doing all the time. It really is insane. It's crazy. But it seems logical at the time. It's sad because too often we think of our obedience to God as something we must do to avoid God's punishment. As if that's the reason to obey. We don't think of obedience in terms of God being the only one who can truly give us life, truly bring us joy, truly satisfy us with happiness in our hearts and souls and lives forever, just like He promises He will. Obedience to our Creator. He's the giver of life, ultimately brings us life. There are seasons of struggle. This world is a tribulation. We have a promise that we're going to have suffering in this world, and we have a promise of a kingdom coming when Christ returns. I'm not saying everything's peachy now. The Bible says it's for sure not peachy now. But God, our Creator, is the giver of life. And He promises life and shalom in His kingdom. So the question is never, are you willing to give up your happiness and live for God? Anybody ever asked you that? Anybody ever said that to you? Well, then look, are you willing to surrender your happiness and live for God? You know what that's like? That's like saying, are you willing to give up food so that you won't be hungry anymore? What? That doesn't make any sense. Give up 
happiness and live for God as if not living for God is happiness? See, the only question really is logically, where do you believe? I mean, just think about this. Where do you believe happiness and satisfaction is ultimately found? God, your creator, who created the entire universe? Wisdom is infinite. Love is infinite. Or maybe somebody, something else. I don't know, some created thing that's temporary and it's not going to live very long. I think that might be better. That's always the crux of every temptation we face. And that's always where Satan is trying to deceive us the most. Here's what the Bible's telling us. Everywhere, here in James and 1 Peter and everywhere else, here's what the Bible's telling us. Catch this. Every area in your life, every issue you face in your life that you are not, that you have not submitted to God is a kind of open door. It's a kind of spiritual handle for Satan to enter and grab hold of more of your life so that he can control you and destroy you. Every area has that potential. That's what James is saying. James is saying, take it very seriously. There really is a serious reason to be so serious. Now, what's those areas in your life? Are you willing to submit those issues, those areas where self-will is raising its head? Are you willing to wash and purify and grieve and mourn and wail and humble and submit and resist where you need to? Let me just get right to one that's really hard, probably the hardest, money. Now, if you don't have money, you don't think you struggle with money. You do, you just don't know it. But if you have money, let me ask you some questions. Are you willing to submit all your money to the will of God in your life? Everything you own, everything you have, everything you possess, are you willing to just submit it? I'm not saying give it all away. I don't think God calls you to do that. But to submit it to His will, to submit it to Him. Whatever degree your answer is, I don't know. No, I don't think so is why money is changing you, and not for the better. It's grabbing hold. It's controlling. In an invisible way, it's giving Satan more control of your life, and it is destroying you. Are you willing to submit your business, your career, your work to God? Are you willing to submit how you do your work, how you see your work, what you do in your work, how you do it? Are you willing to submit your marriage? Disappointments, I'm speaking negatively, struggles, frustrations, real crises relationally. Are you willing to submit that to God? Are you willing to submit your singleness to God? God, I trust you. You have a race marked out for me. You understand my needs. You give life. You have a plan. You have a race marked out. I trust you. Even if that, I don't want it to be. I pray that it's not. Even if that means I'm single the rest of my life. I'm just saying if that's you. Are you willing to submit your divorce that's happened to you? To God. As a race marked out for you. God somehow in his providence, not saying it's a good thing, somehow in his providence this is a race he's marked out for you that you have to run. 
Or are you going to hang on to your bitterness? Are you going to hang on to your regrets? Hang on to your anger? Hang on to your unforgiveness? Or will you just let it go? Move forward and submit it to God and humble yourself. Are you willing to submit your sexuality? To God, all the ways that our culture is trying to speak to you and reduce your life to this over-sexualized culture, are you willing, perhaps, if that's what God called you to, are you willing, perhaps, not to be satisfied sexually, not to be satisfied until the kingdom of God, but you'll be satisfied in all things. Whatever that is you want, you'll have. Are you willing to submit that to God or no? No. You want self-will in that. Which is it? What about your looks? What about your body? What about your appearance? What about your aging? Are you willing to submit that to God? What about your kids? Submit, give to God. What about your loneliness? Submit, give to God. What about your future? Make a blank sheet of paper and you sign the bottom and say, God, you fill it in. This is my future. You fill it in. I'm willing to submit it your way. Are you willing to do that? What about your present? All the things that are going on in your life that are causing all kinds of hassles, are causing all kinds of worries, anxieties, concern. Can you submit all of that to God? What about your past? The things you've done, your regrets, your what-ifs, your how-could-they's. Just submit it to God. Just give it over. See, Jesus says in John 10.10, the devil is a thief. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I am the good shepherd. I came that you might have life and that it would have abundant life. I'm the good shepherd and I lay down my life for the sheep. The other, anything that has to do with self-will, self-purpose, self-focus, self-ambition, he wants to steal and kill and destroy. God, Christ, is the only one who's died for you so that he could give you life. Notice what James says here. very first thing he says, he gives us more grace. I think grace is God's life-giving ability and our own inability. I think that's what grace means. It's given to us in our own ability, life-giving ability. He always gives us more grace. Look at Niagara Falls. Billions of gallons of water fall over Niagara Falls every year. It's been doing that for thousands of years. It's going to continue to have more. Billions of gallons flow over it. It's not going to fall out. It's not going to empty. It keeps going. It has more to give. And that's just a small, finite picture of the infinite grace of God for you when you submit your life to Jesus. Just submit it. And he will always have more grace for you. He always has more grace. So James says, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives more and more grace 
to the humble. So, so submit yourself then to God. Resist the devil. Self-will, self-focus, self-everything. Come near to God. And he'll come near to you. Wash, purify your heart in the grace of God. Take it very seriously. If it means grieving, mourning, wailing, turning your laughter in the morning for a season, then you do so. You take it seriously. But humble yourself before the Lord, whatever it takes, and he will exalt you. That's what James says. I don't know if you believe that or not, but that's God speaking into your life from the outside looking in. See, in God's universe, which is this universe, by the way, in God's universe, everything's turned upside down. Up is down and down is up. He will exalt you. Lower yourself to him. Humble yourself to him. So Jesus took the bread at the Passover meal and he said, this is my body given for you. There's always more grace. I'm the good shepherd who lays down my life for the sheep. I came to give you life and to give you life abundantly. It may be a struggle now. It may be mourning now. It may be grieving now. But there is an exaltation coming later. I promise. I promise. I promise. Jesus says, come to me and I'll come to you. He took the wine and he said, this is my covenant. This is my blood of the new covenant poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I lay down my life for the sheep. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Come to me and I will come to you. That's what this is this morning. If that's what you want to do, we're not going to dismiss by rows. You don't have to come. This is for you if you want to come and draw near to God, beginning here with this very physical, sensible, in a sense of your physical senses, experience of coming near to God and Him coming near to you in communion. You just take a piece of bread and dip it in the wine that's in our hand, or you can dip it in the juice that's on the stool if you want. You don't need to say anything. We'll say something to you. If you want to give to the needs of the needy in our community, all the money that goes in those baskets with the white cloth goes to that separate account. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the promise. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but you have not left us to ourselves. You are the good shepherd who came and laid down your life for the sheep and rose from the dead so that we would have shalom and love, life in your kingdom. So we want to draw near to you. There's only, you're the only good shepherd. There's no other good plan for our life. We come near to you in Jesus' name. Amen.